your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's entitled, Our Refuge in a Time of Danger. Our Refuge in a Time of Danger. Let's begin now with chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. It says, It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon, Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, <clears throat> and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham your friend forever? And they dwell in it, and you have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine... We will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit." O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. Now with Jehoshaphat, if you remember in the previous chapter, he was doing a good work. He was reforming his kingdom and he was providing for the long overdue administration of justice and support of religion in it. And he expected to hear about nothing but peace and prosperity of his reign. But things changed very quickly for the nation of Judah. From the peaceful and pleasant job of finishing the good work that he started all throughout the land, all of a sudden it changed to this frightening news of an invading army that was threatening the freedom of his kingdom. So Jehoshaphat had to switch gears from peace to a possible war. But it was followed by such a glorious deliverance and as a reward, a result of his faithfulness. There are lessons to be learned here. There's a whole lot of great lessons in this chapter. The lessons to be here learned here alone in verses 1 through 13. Number one, how quickly we can find ourselves in a dangerous situation. How things can turn in the twinkling of an eye, if you will. It seems like Judah didn't do anything, though, to bring on this attack or to have any reason to expect this attack. It just kind of came out of the blue. But again, these kinds of things happen to nations. They also happen to churches. They happen to families, and they happen to individuals. 
You know, you're breezing along. Everything seems to be fine. There's no troubles in the horizon. And all of a sudden, Satan invades your life for no reason other than he hates you because you're a child of God. And because you're a child of God, you have a target on your chest. A totally unexpected series, a serious situation comes up. Like that nation that, that should have been a, a friend all of a sudden becomes an enemy. Or that job that should have been my source of income and security isn't looking so secure anymore. Or, or, or it could possibly put me in, an, in the unemployment line. But, and, and put me in a serious financial bind. Or those people who we thought are our best friends, who we trusted, become our adversaries and they get in the way of our plans. What starts out to be a bright and shiny morning turns into a storm. And this is something that will very likely happen to all of us someday. So knowing this, it would be smart for us to be prepared for it when it comes. Secondly, from these verses, we learn that God is our refuge. Now, if God is going to be our refuge, then we have to be in a right relationship with him. And we have to be able to say with great commitment, not only, O Lord, God of our fathers, but also, are you not our God? As Jehoshaphat said in verses 6 and 7 here. We have to be true children of Abraham, who was the friend of God, verse 7 says. We have to be clearly and without a doubt on the Lord's side. We must be with and for Christ and not against him. Secondly, we have to be ready uh, able to say it's Jesus also who has enabled us to think and to feel that God is our friend. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 15, I have called you friends. But on what ground did he call them friends? And in what ways? Well, he called them friends on the ground and in the ways of mutual love, which includes what all true love must include, affection and trust. God loves us. He loves us like a father, like his children who were once separated from him, but they're now reconciled to him, like those who have become so loved by him, by his great sacrifice for us, and by his seeking after him and surrendering ourselves to him. Not only that, and God trusts us. He doesn't treat us like slaves. He treats us like sons and daughters. He doesn't lay down a bunch of strict and harsh rules to control the way that we behave. But he does give us a few wide-ranging principles, and he trusts us to apply them to our own situation. And in return, we love him and we trust him in response. And in him, that is, in his faithfulness and in his wisdom and in his goodness, we have a steadfast trust. So we have the mutual love of friendship. Secondly, we learn from these verses the close resemblance of character and passion that we are to have with him. We can't have a friendship with him if our character and our passions are not basically the same as his. You know, our character and our passions have to be very much like his. And that's the way it is with the Lord and those who carry his name. We call ourselves Christians. That means like Christ-like. All right? We, we, we carry his name. 
His character needs to be our character. His principles need to be our principles. His passions need to be our passions. And what he loves, we must love. And what he hates, we must hate. His friends are our friends. His enemies are our enemies. This is the true basis of friendship. And even our old nature that is constantly rearing its head, that is constantly trying to separate us from God, is not a barrier. So being like Jesus, as his true followers are, being like Jesus, that's what his true followers are like, is necessary in order to be his friends and for him to be ours. You know, Amos 3.3 said, can two walk together unless they are agreed? The third thing we learn from these verses is that, that oneness is, oneness, we need to be one in purpose and action. We need to be one with the Lord in purpose and action. In other words, friendship is founded and nourished by a common goal and by working together. We're all in it for the same cause and we're all working toward that cause. Those who have the same heart and work together in any good work, they become united together with a strong tie of true companionship. You know what? And it's the same thing with our Lord and ourselves. He's busy trying to, uh, again, bringing the knowledge and the love and the likeness of God to a lost world, and so are we. That's what we're to be doing. He's worked and he's suffered to make that happen. So do we. We are workers together with him. And his cause is our cause. He and us are determined to accomplish the same great purpose. And while he works through us and in us, he also works with us in this great work. Paul said, for we are God's fellow workers. We're his friends. So being his friends, we need to, number one, recognize what a high honor he's given us. Think about it. Also, we have to walk worthy of such a high call. And third, we have to be careful that we never do anything or become anything that will make us lose such a great inheritance. We need to be found faithful as the friends of God. Because you see, we can't expect God's delivering grace if we haven't been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And then we have to be aware of we have to be aware of righteousness under the special circumstances. In other words, Jehoshaphat was able to argue that he and his people were rightful owners of the land that they inherited from God himself. We see that in verse 11. And these invaders were totally in the wrong and their attack was totally unjustified. But Jehoshaphat was able to say that the cause of Judah, what they were doing was just and it was right. We also have, this, have to have this awareness of integrity if we're going to lean upon God, if God's going to be with us. You see, we can't ask God to be involved if we're in the wrong or if we've been acting unworthy of our Lord. 1 John 3.21 says, If we don't feel guilty, then we can come to God with bold confidence. Otherwise, we can't get our hopes up. And then we have to depend totally upon God. We have to be able to honestly say, as Jehoshaphat did here in verse 12, our eyes are upon you, Lord. And here's why. Psalm 27, 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then verse 12. Let's look at verse 12 real quick here. Verse 12 says, 
O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Verse 12 here speaks about wickedness, it speaks about weakness, and it speaks about worship. First, it speaks about weakness. Weakness. It says, notice, will you not judge them? Why would he judge them? Because of their wickedness. The invading armies were nations that Israel wasn't allowed to invade when they came out of Egypt, verse 10 tells us. And yet here they are returning evil for good by invading Judah. They were wicked. So Jehoshaphat goes to God and he prays for God's judgment on these nations. And as the prayer shows, you know, these nations were definitely judged by God. So the answer to Jehoshaphat's question, you know, will you not judge them, was a loud yes. Because God does judge evil nations. Now, evil nations may seem to be having things their way. You know, we can look around at evil nations, uh, you know, that, that, that hate us and come against us. And, it, and they may seem to have their way. But sooner or later, God's judgment is going to cut them down. It speaks of weakness. Notice they said, we have no power against the great multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do. Here was the biggest problem. The enemy was overpowering, and Judah was weak in both an army, and, and, and in soldiers, and a plan. And Judah's situation is like ours many times. Many times our problems, uh, uh, you know, like the enemies of Judah, seem to be too big for us. You know, and too many problems and overpowering us. And we come to the place where, where we think, you know, what can I do? There's nothing I can do. We start to think that, that we're helpless and we have no hope with our problems. And that there's no way out. And then we begin to feel anxious. And, and, and our heart gets so discouraged and so hopeless. But you know what? God allows these things to happen. He allows these times to come. He allows these situations to arise in our life so that He can show us His great power and wisdom. To show us He answers prayer. And you know what? If we never had these things happen to us, how in the world would we know that He could solve them? Never give up. Do like Jehoshaphat did and go to God as we see next. Then we see in verse 12, worship. Even though he says, you know, are you going to judge them, Lord? And he says, we have no power against this great multitude. We don't know what to do. Notice what he says. But our eyes are upon you. Worship in this situation. You may be overwhelmed by your problems. They may be bigger than you. There might be many that, more than you can handle at this at the time. But as long as you can pray and ask for God's help, hey, you still have hope. But too many times, instead of going to God, when we're in trouble, we seem to seek everything but God. Go everywhere but to God. Jehoshaphat wisely went to God in prayer. And you know what? He got the victory for Judah. Asking God for help. When we're in trouble, it's easy to do. And prayer is the key to victory. And Psalm 46, 1 tells us God is our refuge and he's our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. 
The psalmist said in Psalm 62, verses 5 and 7, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. You know, the psalmist said, My expectation is from Him. And if you have no expectation in God, you have no hope. No expectation, no hope. And we should be united. We should be together in our attitude in our, and in our action. Notice what it says in verse 13. All Judah, notice, not just some of them. All Judah stood before the Lord, notice, with their wives and their little ones. It wasn't just the leaders or the rep- representatives that should call upon God. It says even the little ones. Now, now their presence and their prayer might not have seemed so important. But they stood before God and they joined together in asking God for help. Let's look at verses 14 through 19 now. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and your inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, or the deliverance of the Lord, who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites, Stood up, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices, notice, loud and high. Now here in these verses, we, see, we have here lessons to be learned before we go into battle. Lessons to be learned before we go into battle. After Jehoshaphat prayed and Judah prayed, notice it said Judah waited for God to answer, but they didn't have to wait long. Here's the lesson. God is ready to answer his people's prayer. While they were still praying, in verse 14, God answered them. While they were still speaking, God heard them. We read in Isaiah 65, 24, It shall come to pass that before they call, God says, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. I will hear. And as we've all experienced... God may not always answer us right away, but we can still be sure that he always listens and pays attention to all of our prayers. And if we have the same reverence and the same faith that we see here in the people of Judah, we can be sure that God always plans right away to send us the best kind of deliverance. Even if he doesn't start the ball rolling right away to make it happen. Another lesson. In these verses, don't be worried about numbers. 
Notice in verse 15, what, is, what, is, what does God say? Do not fear nor be dismayed because of this great multitude. Don't be worried about how many people they have. Don't worry about the size of this army that's coming against you. We worry so much about size and numbers and, and, and you know, all of that. We worry about whether you know, they're on our side or the other side. But remember the words of 1 Samuel 14, 6, For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or few. God doesn't look at how many or few enemies are against us before he saves, before he delivers us. It's a big mistake to think that we're safe because we have more people on our side than the other side. Psalm 33, 16 says, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. And history has shown over and over again that big numbers of people, whether soldiers or supporters, often gives a false sense of confidence. And confidence causes carelessness and negligence that lead to defeat and destruction. Not only that, it's never quantity. It is quality. It's never size, but it's spirit. And it's never numbers. It's character that decides how things are going to turn out. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 3, we read, Joshua said, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So this is in the opposite, in the negative, if you will. You know, they were gonna, Joshua's army was going to go up against Ai. Joshua says, You know what? Don't send the whole army. And just send two or 3,000 of the men to go up there. He says, you know, because AI, they're, they're such a small town. There, there's so few people there. You know what happened? Israel got defeated by those few people. Why? They didn't go to God. They felt, well, you know, we can handle it. We have, you know, more troops than they do. And it'll be a, it'll be a piece of cake. No big deal. They got beat. God showed them, hey. Don't do anything before you consult me. Don't do anything before praying. Now, in Gideon's case, when he was going to go up against the Midianites, he started out with 32,000 people, 32,000 warriors. God says, no. He says, just, tell, just ask all the guys who are afraid to go to war to, to just go home. And so it whittled down to 10,000. God says, no, 10,000 is still too many. So they ended up with 300. 300 men went to battle under Gideon's leadership. Because God said, hey, you know, if you take all these guys, you're going to say, ah, well, we whipped them because we had the bigger, better armies. No, I want the glory to go to me. So Gideon went to battle with 300 men. When he started out with 32,000, 300 men that were not afraid. And they went out and they whipped the Midianites. You see, we don't put our trust in how many friends that we have. We don't need to fear how many enemies that we have. If the battle isn't to the strong, then for sure it's not to the many. The next lesson that we learn in these verses, that it's everything to have God on our side. We can be sure that when the people of Judah had this assurance from Jehaziel, not only were they calmed you know, and comforted, But they had a sense that, you know what? Everything's going to be okay. Why? 
Because God had promised them that, you know what, your problem is my problem. Notice in verse 15, he says, the battle is not yours, it's mine. Secondly, he said, because I am going to be with you. Verse 17 says, the Lord will be with you in the battle. Third, God promised, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to work for you. Verse 17 says, see the salvation of the Lord. Just watch. Watch what I'm going to do. That's why they were so calmed down after that and so comforted because God says, I'm going to fight this thing. It's not you. I'm going to be with you. Just stand back and watch what happens. You see, this was enough even for those who were afraid. And you know what? It should be enough for us as well. Knowing that the battle that we fight is the Lord's and it's not ours. Knowing that he's going to be with us in the battle. And we're assured that he's going to work it out. And with those things going for us, we can be calm, even confident. Even though the enemy is growing closer and closer and closer. The next lesson that we learn in verses 14 through 19 is that we must be ready to take our part and do our work. Now, whatever that might consist of. Notice God told him, God told him after, after he said, you know what, the battle is, is not yours, it's mine. And after he says, you know what, I'm going to be with you. And after he told him, you know what, watch what I do. He said, now, here's your part. Verse 16, you go down against them. You go down there and you get ready in battle array and you get ready to fight. He says in verse 17, position yourself, but stand still. So they obeyed and then they worshiped the Lord. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, then Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with, very, uh, with a very loud shout. We should praise God before victory. Praise Him before we go to battle. The people believe what God said to them. Now their army wasn't led by expert uh, uh, archers or, or spear throwers or, or charioteers. The Lord's army was led by singers singing praises to the Lord for their promised victory, and the victory came. Remember when David led the procession that was bringing the ark back into Jerusalem? He praised God with all of his strength. David's, David's praise pleased God, and God's presence stayed in David's kingdom to give him victory against his enemy, every enemy. Remember when Jesus was about to go to Gethsemane and then to the cross, where God's greatest victory would be won? Jesus led his disciples to sing a hymn. All the disciples were about to bail out on him. They were about to fail him. And Jesus was about to be viciously executed. Yet Jesus insisted that they praise God. Their praise looked past the cross. Their praise didn't look at the problem. They didn't look at what was going to happen on the cross. Their praise looked past the cross to God's ultimate victory. Praise is not based on the circumstances that we're in at the moment. In other words, oh, how can I praise God with what I'm going through right now? Because he promised the battle was not mine. He promised to be with me. And he said, watch. 
Watch what I'm going to do. So we praise him, not based on our circumstances, but based on knowing the victory is already mine. And I'm not fighting for victory. I'm fighting from victory. So we don't focus on the problems and the failures of others. We focus on God's assurance that I am going to get the victory. If you have trouble praising God with a song in your heart as you serve him, maybe it's because your focus isn't on him, but it's on your circumstances. The next lesson is that a spirit of worshipful thanks is always right. We see that in verses 18 and 19. Even before the shouts of victory went up, they praised the Lord for the victory. While God is leading us forward to the battle, while we're serving under Jesus Christ and we're waiting for the outcome, as long as we're trusting in him and we're not trusting in ourselves, it would be good to let our hearts be filled and to let our songs be heard with a reverent joy. Verses 20 through 30 now. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, notice the Lord set ambush against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the mountain, and there were dead, and there were there dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there, for, for there they are blessed of the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Barakah, which is the Valley of Blessing, until this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them, to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. That Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet because his God gave him rest all around. Here are lessons to be learned after the battle. Praise defeats the enemy. The king and his people, trusting in God, marched to meet their enemies with a sure heart and a song in their mouth. And we learn by this that our enemies sometimes destroy each other. We see that in verse 23. And you know what? Sometimes it's best to just leave the enemy alone. You know, like David did when he was walking down that road and Shimei's yelling at him and he's cursing at him and he's making all of these accusations. David ignored him. Let him be. David just let God, David just let God handle it. 
Secondly, we learn that under God's hand, the evil that we fear is far outweighed by the good that we get from the evil. In other words, when the Jewish army returned from the wilderness of Tekoa, they were loaded down with spoil, verse 25 says. And the the picture here is that God makes us so rich as a result of the battle. Now, the way these these, uh, folks, um, you know, Judah, the way Judah... uh, gained from this experience of the battle was through material things. But how does that apply to us? We gain rich and wealthy things that we learn in the battle. You know, how to pray, praying more, reading more, trusting more, leaving it to the Lord, watching how God delivers But you see, we have to be sure that God is on our side and we can only be sure by totally surrendering ourselves to him and to his service. And by seeing that we choose the side, the righteousness, the right side and not selfishness and pride. Third, we learn this after the battle, that goodness of heart, that God should see the goodness of our heart in the form of thanks. Notice where they went right after the victory. Verse 28 says where? To the house of the Lord. After they won the battle, they went to the house of God. What better place to show their gladness and their thanks but at home in God's house? And what better way to give thanks than to sing praises to their God? Fourth, we learn after the battle that it's good when our victories are forgotten for the furtherance of the kingdom. Now, what does this mean? It was great that Jerusalem was safe. But you know, it was greater than that. Verse 29 says, all the other kingdoms feared God. You see, we might be happy personally in our own family, in our own country, you know, because it's safe and everything is well. But you know what? We should be happier when the work and the kingdom of the Lord has been greatly advanced. And this should be the object of our concern and of our rejoicing. We should be you know, concerned that, that the gospel is getting out, that people are getting saved, that the word of God is being spread. And the furtherance of the kingdom of God is being promoted and we see it happening. The fifth thing that we learn after the battle is that rest is the reward of labor and strife, according to verse 30. Notice they had rest all around after the victory. The victory resulted in religious freedom Because of their courageous suffering and their strife. And that may result in a long period of rest and peace. Let's close with verses 31 through 37. So Jehoshaphat was king over Judah. And he was 35 years old when he became king. And he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah the daughter of Shilhi. And he walked in the way of his father Asa and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last, indeed they are written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion-Geber. But Eliezer, the son of Dodavah, 
of Mereshah prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. Then the ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. Jehoshaphat ran into serious problems. Notice, when he joined up with wicked King Ahaziah, you think he would have learned when he first joined up with King Ahab, that's not a good thing. He does it again here. He partners with another wicked king. He didn't learn from his unsuccessful partnership with Ahab back in chapter 18 or from his father's partnership with Syria in chapter 16. This partnership that he had here with King Ahaziah, he was unequally yoked. Because King Ahaziah served the enemy, Jehoshaphat served the Lord. Ahaziah worshipped idols. Jehoshaphat worshipped the true and the living God. And we are just asking for trouble. When we become partners in a way, in any way, with unbelievers. Because you see, our foundations, our foundations are so different. The evil and the they're going in two different directions. They can't pull together. That's what it means by being unequally yoked. You know, the, the, the farmer didn't put an oxen together with a little mule and, 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 and to do the work of the plow. Because they were two different strengths. They'd go in two different directions. The little guy would try to get out of the way because, you know, he, you know, he, couldn't, he couldn't pull the load. And it's the same thing. The, the, the person that is not walking with God and the person that they're going in two different directions. They're going down two different paths. One here served the Lord, Jehoshaphat, while the other, Ahaziah, doesn't recognize God's authority. So you would expect the one who serves God... He might be faced with the temptation to compromise his values. And when that happens, spiritual disaster results. So before entering into partnerships, ask these questions of yourself. Why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Secondly, what problems might I have by making this partnership? What problems might I have by making this partnership? Third, is this partnership the best answer to my problem? Or is it just a quick fix? Fourth, have I prayed or asked others to pray for guidance? Fifth, are my partner and I really working toward the same goals? Are we really going in the same direction? And sixth and last, am I willing to settle for less in order to do what God wants? Father, thank you so much for such a rich chapter, Lord. Father, there's so much to be gleaned from chapter 20, God. And Father, I pray that, Lord, we would just take heed in what we read. That we would take it to heart. That God, we wouldn't <coughs> just look at these wonderful nuggets that are here, God, these great examples as just things to, to store in our head full of knowledge, God. 
that it wouldn't just be information, but they would be guides to, to rule our life, God. To bring things in line with your principles, Lord. And help us through this chapter to recognize, God, where we're not walking in your path and how we're not aligned with you, Lord. And Father, the things that I need to learn and to do when I go through difficult times, Lord. But to remember that the battle is not mine and that you promised to be with me in the battle and to position myself, do what I need to do, and to watch the deliverance of the Lord. We thank you, God, for being so so good to us, Lord, and such an awesome God. And maybe you're here tonight and, and you don't know this wonderful, awesome God. But through the message tonight and the spirit moving in your heart, you recognize, I, I want to know this God, this wonderful God. I want him to fight my battles. I want him to be with me in the difficult times of my life. And I want him to deliver me from those battles. Remember, though, you have to be on the right side. You have to be for him not against him. And there's no neutral ground. You're either for him or you're against him. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship. And as they do, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the front here by the steps. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together in prayer of faith.